as you make transitions, and I've made a couple of big transitions from an engineer to a salesperson, salesperson to a customer-focused executives, you have to find the peer group, a peer group that you can bounce ideas as well as learn from as you're making the transition. And that has you know, really worked for me. I've tried to have a personal board of directors, uh, so to speak, where I can go and say, this is the transition that I'm looking to make in my career. How uh, should I navigate this? And so hopefully that is helpful to your audience there. No, that's super helpful. I love the, love the concept of personal board of directors. I'm going to make a note to myself. Maybe maybe I can recruit you to join my board. <laughs> Consider me recruited. <laughs> I will follow up. If there's one thing about me, I'm super persistent. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. On this episode, my guest is Yamini Rangan, the CEO of HubSpot. The tagline of this podcast is, From Engineer to CEO. And that's exactly the path that Yamini took. She started out as an engineer, then moved to sales, and then eventually to running go-to-market operations as an executive. Less than a year ago, Yamini became CEO of HubSpot under unexpected and trying circumstances, which she details in our conversation. We spend most of our time discussing how to make the transition from engineering to sales and how to build a customer-focused organization. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I've listened to your podcast. I've uh, taken notes, learned lessons from other leaders, and so, so glad to be here. Well, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and just your life story. Life story in uh, under two minutes. I will try. Uh, you know, so I wanted to be an architect growing up, and I still remember my mom saying, "You are not going to make any money <laughs> being an architect, so you might as well become an engineer." And so I grew up as an engineer in India, and then moved here to the U.S. after I finished my undergrad. Uh, you know, got my master's in computer engineering spent a bit of time coding. I will tell you in the first five years of my coding, I got a lot more opportunities to speak rather than to code. And initially I thought because I might be just a better presenter, but turns out I was not very good at coding. <laughs> uh, and therefore, you know, I got the opportunity to present technology to a lot more people and ended up uh, going to business school and then, you know, coming out of business school, I was really interested in product marketing. You know, I felt like technology was my thing and I could explain technology to people in an easier fashion. So, um, you know, I, I thought I was interviewing for product marketing uh, and landed in sales. This was the biggest accidental land in sales. I didn't ever think I was going to become a technology salesperson, but turns out that uh, there are two great things that you can do in technology companies, you know, build software or sell software. And 
I spent a good decade in front of customers uh, really communicating the value of technology and learned tremendously. I'm sure we can talk a lot about it. Let's go a little bit into more detail around the sales part. I mean, you're, you're out of business school, you're sort of early in your career, you have a technology background and here, here you are carrying a bag selling. Where was this and what was that like? <laughs> That's a great question. So this was, um, you know, uh, originally uh, at Siebel, which was the original CRM company. And uh, part of the process was to, you know, present about Siebel and the CRM software. And I think you know, coming out of that process, you know, they actually started this new function called value sales. And uh, value sales was slightly different. It was like an overlay type of a sales organization where you would, you know, talk to customers, really communicate the financial value of the technology purchase that they were making. So I got to speak to CFOs, you know, COOs, CROs, all making technology decisions. And the first you know, few years of that, Ashu, were mind-blowing. And I learned so much in that, in that particular role because not only did you get to present to customers, you understood buying behavior, buying patterns, buying decision-making uh, skills for every one of those. And it's probably the best you know, foundation I could have gotten. I tell a lot of folks early in the career, either build software or sell software. And the selling software gives you a lot of empathy for what customers go through. And one of the earlier lessons that I learned in that process is that it's not about selling software, it's about helping someone build their career. Because when a, you know someone makes a technology decision, they're actually putting their job on the line. Yep. It could be a VP of sales making a CRM decision that's putting the job on the line. It could be a CFO writing a big check that's putting their job on the line. It could be a COO putting their job on their line. And at one point in the decision-making process, they are putting their job on the line. So for me, sales and being in front of customers have always been about making someone's career successful. And that's really how... HubSpot thinks about, you know, uh, the philosophy of selling as well. That's, that's such a great story. You know, I was, I was at sales kickoff in the morning for one of my portfolio companies, Fortanix, and, and we had sort of, you know, they have a dozen salespeople, so it's very early in the grand scheme of things. And, and it's uncanny because I said to them that, look, eventually for a startup, we're selling promotions. Yes. That's what, that's what our customers are buying. They're buying a bunch of technology, but they're putting their careers on the line and success for them is they get a promotion and failure is they get fired. And, and the fact that your technology is sort of the, the differentiator, you know, it, there's a lot of weight that goes far beyond the technology that, that a salesperson takes and, and, by, and, you know, by implication, the company takes on. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard for most engineers to get that because most engineers believe it's so obvious. It's a no brainer that sh someone should buy their technology. That's right. You know, you ran sort of these sales strategy and sales teams across a variety of organizations, and then at some point made a transition to sort of leading a broad range of customer-facing functions. I mean, that itself is a very, you know, it's a very different role and a very different perspective. Talk, uh, talk to us a little bit about what were some of the challenges and what it took. Yeah, so 
So look, there are, you know, I certainly went from uh, sales to go to market strategy and operations to leading all of the functions. And to me, um, there are two things that were happening in the industry that, you know, uh, were very pivotal. The first thing that was happening in the industry is we became customer focused in a way that we had not done before. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, Ashu, I started in the client server world. And at that time, marketing and sales was about winning the customer. And it was just about, you know, winning a customer, putting a gong or bell and kind of claiming that victory. What happened, you know, and what has happened in maybe the last decade is we've gone from winning the customer to really retaining and delighting the customer. That is the transition that happened with SaaS. And almost every go-to-market leader, you know, had to not just think about marketing or sales or silos, but think about the customer and solving for the customer. And so for me, the transition happened at the same time as I was going from a strategy and operations professional to being a customer-focused executive. Uh, Everything became customer in and not looking at it from a functional you know, uh, viewpoint. And I think that was the big pivotal moment moment in my career. And that's what has led me to, you know, uh, lead customer focused and customer obsessed organizations. And, you know, in the, in, 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 the, in the last year or so at HubSpot, you've made that transition now from leading a broad set of functions to being CEO and sort of being for good or for bad in the hot seat. Uh, you know, what's that transition been like? It's, it's often, you know, it's often exciting, but also very lonely. Uh, Indeed, indeed. So I joined HubSpot two years ago, and uh, the vision at HubSpot was to bring together all of the customer-focused organizations into what we call the flywheel. And uh, flywheel, you know, is very different from a funnel. A funnel basically starts with marketing and sales, and you win the customer. For us, flywheel is all about putting the customer at the center and bringing together the teams that can attract, engage, and delight the customer. So that was the vision. Just really sold on, you know, doing that in an organization that is focused on customers. So I started two months before COVID, and uh, you know, the pandemic hit, which uh, in and of itself was quite a big challenge. But we uh, took one north star for the entire organization during the pandemic, which was solve for the customer. We knew that the segment that we were serving, which is small and medium business, they were going to go through uh, a lot of things in order for them to be able to survive. And for us, solving for the customer during that time was just exceptionally critical. And so that was my first year at HubSpot. Uh, Turns out that was not the end of our trials and tribulations because last March in 2021, our co-founder and CEO of 15 years, Brian, met with an unfortunate accident, which uh, then he needed time to recover. And so he called me and said, hey, please help run the operations of the company and make sure everything goes well. And our first consideration was to give him the time needed for him to recover. And he did. He recovered uh, really well. And he came back uh, in August and, you know, we had a call and he said, oh, I need to talk. And, you know, when you get a call and says, I need to talk to you, uh, that, you know, wondering, was it, this, where is this going to go? 
yes, where is this going to go? Uh, well, the call ended up where he said, look, you've done a great job and I want to partner with you and I want you to take on the leadership of HubSpot and I want to help you um, as we go through the next chapter of growth. And so in September of last year, I uh, took on the role of the CEO and I'm just, you're, you're right, it's multiple emotions. For me, uh, part of the emotion was actually you know, taking it over from Brian, who is a legendary CEO who's led the company for 15 years, has really uh, created an organization that is exceptionally valuable because of the focus on employees and customers. And then the second part of it was a personal journey of thinking about where I grew up in India and my a whole story of coming to this country and uh, from there, being in sales and tech sales for women is a fairly lonely place as well. And then from there, actually Especially getting to Especially at this. I mean, that was a hard place. I mean, I know a lot of people in that organization at that time. Yeah. It was a very hard-charging, macho culture. So not an easy yeah. place to stand out and be successful as, and be as successful as you were. Yeah, and uh, fairly lonely as well. And so I think all of that, uh, you know, certainly went through my mind. But look, I think HubSpot is one of those uh, fantastic organizations that's centered around solving the right kinds of issues for our customers, as well as being focused on employees and culture. And I couldn't be more grateful uh, to be here. Oh, that's, that's quite the story. And it's, you've had quite the last two years. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this notion of a flywheel, because it's an interesting concept. I mean, Everyone thinks about the go-to-market function as a funnel, uh, but as you rightly said, in, in a world where you know, we're no we can no longer sell shelfware, which is what most software was 15, 20 years ago, and you actually have to drive adoption, usage. I mean, intuitively it makes sense, and analytically I'm sure every CEO would agree, but very few have been able to operationalize that. Yep. Uh, so tell us a little bit and talk to the listeners about what are some of the changes you made organizationally and in terms of strategy to operationalize the flywheel? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I'll tell you, I'll start with funnel. The funnel is broken. The funnel is broken because marketing, sales, customer success, they all act like they are on different sides of the table, but they are all on one side of the table, which is the customer side. And that is not what the funnel does because once you start thinking about the funnel, it's like I delivered leads to you, you close the customer and someone else takes care of satisfaction. And you know that it's broken in an organization if you go to each of these functions and ask them what they're focused on. And if the answer is I'm focused on leads, I'm focused on ARR, I'm focused on some satisfaction metric, then the answer is wrong. If the answer does not include customer and customer delight, then they're on different parts of the table and they need to be much more aligned. So uh, we're fundamental believers that the funnel vision is broken and therefore you need to have a flywheel vision. So what is the flywheel vision? You said it, Ashu, which is put the customer at the center and really attract engage and delight the customers, which basically means bring your marketing sales and customer success organizations and have them develop a vision for what the customer journey ought to look like, customer phasing in rather than function phasing out. 
Now, it's an easier concept to understand because you can say once you have a delighted customer, they're going to advocate for you and they're going to advocate for your company. And that's a beautiful flywheel. So how do you actually get started? That's the more difficult yep. part of the equation. To us, uh, it is both art as well as science. And when I say art and science of customer experience, the art part starts with having a culture that is just exceptionally focused on the customer. Now, a lot of times customer um, focused initiatives are part of an annual goal. And for us, it is built into the DNA of the company. And it's there from the day that you start with the company. The science portion of it are, you know, like any methodology, it starts with bringing the teams together, which is what HubSpot did under the flywheel umbrella. The second is having a vision or a strategy for what the customer's experience needs to look like. In our case, we want to deliver delightful experience to customer at every stage of the journey. And then having the right incentives as well as the visibility from a system perspective so that you can drive that delightful customer experience. And you said this as you know, we were talking about the flywheel, which is in the world of SaaS, it's not about acquiring a customer. It is much more about retaining and delighting the customer. And therefore, you really have to approach it from having the right team, the right strategy, the right systems, and the right incentives so that you can execute towards a customer-focused vision. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Aparna Dinarkran. I'm co-founder of Arise AI. Hope you don't mind if I interrupt this episode to tell you a little bit about my company. Arise is a machine learning observability platform. With the adoption of AI ML at an all-time high, it's more important than ever to understand how this technology is affecting your business. When models are deployed in production, we lose all sight of how they're actually performing. Even the engineers who built them couldn't tell you why they're buggy or not doing what they're supposed to do. Arise is here to help. By providing real-time analytics and observability, the Arise platform helps your team determine when, why, and how your models are performing. We empower engineers to fix models with explainable analysis and catch upstream engineering issues. So if your team is fed up with the hours spent troubleshooting and debugging your models, you don't have to keep just hoping for the best. You can arise. You know, you already talked about how the shift from client server, which we both grew up in, to, to SaaS has been the shift from people selling soft software that you know you could put as shelfware. When I was at Cadence, I, at some point I made the estimate that less than 5% of our software was actually being used by somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and when I told the CEO that, he was like, can you delete all the files associated with that, that analysis? <laughs> we never want to see that again. Uh, but today that's impossible because you know, all software is, you know, you know exactly who's using what. Uh, so that's sort of the obvious shift. But what are some of the other changes uh, that have happened as a result of this transition to SaaS? I, I think uh, you're exactly right. The, the whole concept of buying and not using software and you know, shelfware is no longer there. Thankfully, we are here you know, in this decade where uh, it is not uh, about that uh, aspect of buying and winning. It's much more about the usage and delight that we provide to customers. I would say there are two other big shifts. You know, uh, one is just consumerization of software. You know, what are the 
great experiences that you go through on a day-to-day basis. You know, if I get up and if my kids need something, I'm ordering it on Amazon, which is one click. And then for lunch, I can get something through DoorDash. For my pets, I'm ordering through Chewy. And these are all one-click, delightful, beautiful experiences. And when I do need to connect to those uh, organizations, if something is wrong, they make it so easy. I always time myself when I'm on an uh, Amazon support call. It literally, last couple of times, it's been like five minutes or less where, hey, I lost a package. Great. We know what package it is. We will send it to you. And this is the day it's come. Goodbye. That is just a beautiful customer experience. And I think that's having a huge impact on the B2B side because yep. B2B sales process is not. <laughs> it's far from that. And, and, it's quite and far our customers from all expect the same now from, from their enterprise software. Exactly. So you, you wake up and that's the kind of experience that B2B customers have, uh, B2B companies have to be delivering to their customers. And so that's a huge transition. The second transition, which has also happened in the last 15 uh, years or so, is who has knowledge and who has information and therefore who has power. You know, when we started maybe, and I certainly feel this, when I started as a seller, um, the buyer did not have enough, enough information. And I, as a seller, would call the buyer and maybe they pick up the phone and I'd be able to share the information about whatever product I was selling at that time. And that's how the buyer got to know and they fix up a demo and we'd show a demo. Right now, what has happened over the last decade is that the buyer can go onto the website, they can do their own research, they can download a product, they can trial the product, they can go to you know, a pure community like G2Crowd and find out everything about the product and then make a decision and buy touchlessly. So there is, it's a complete transition where the buyer has all of the power and they're and all of the information. And so the way we think about you know, B2B software, specifically within the category that we operate, which is CRM, it's, it's much more about that buyer empowerment rather than seller enablement. And it's much more about delightful customer experiences, very similar to what we see on the B2C side. I think these are profound shifts that are happening, uh, especially within B2B SaaS companies. No, no, absolutely. I think I think the the shift in the expectations, and then as you said, buyers are 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 as educated, and they start their journeys in different places. And you have right. to meet them at their at, at whatever point in their buying journey they are, as again, sort of lead them through a guided path that you get to choose at this point. Absolutely. Uh, the other change I think in 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 HubSpot has has clearly been at the at the vanguard of this is now small businesses and mid-sized businesses are buying software because yep. of the other two changes. I mean, when, when software was sold 15, 20 years ago, the selling process was such that you had to be very sophisticated to be able to buy it. Yep. You know, with consumerization, with the access to information, with the fact that it's sold in a SaaS business model, you know, every two person, five person, 10 company is now buying software and, 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 and you at HubSpot have clearly been at the vanguard of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that change? And what is, as you look, play that out over the next decade, uh, how do you expect the buying, be, the role of small and mid-sized businesses in software to sort of evolve? 
Absolutely. I think all of the profound shifts that we're seeing, it plays out really in the small and medium businesses. Uh, small and medium businesses typically, you know, have just productivity challenges, right? As you're beginning to scale, you know, how many more people can you add at that level of maturity of the organization? So uh, I think the bigger shift is leveraging technology and technology investments to be able to drive productivity as they continue to scale. And we talk about our focus is really to help companies grow better. And growing better means, you know, leveraging some kind of automation, leveraging technology, not just adding more people, because I don't think that small and medium businesses can continue to kind of, you know, grow that way. So I think that's one profound uh, shift in the small and medium businesses. It's also very interesting, Ashu, to think about the last two years since the pandemic started. At the beginning of the pandemic, almost everybody wrote small and medium businesses out, right? They just wrote it out. They said, yep. all of small, medium businesses are just going to disappear. They're not going to survive and they're just going to completely shut down. What happened has been so fascinating. I'm sure books will be written about it, but what happened is that in a matter of, you know, couple of months to six months, a lot of small medium businesses decided that they needed to survive and thrive in this new world and therefore adopted technology, became, you know, digital first. Yeah, they reinvented themselves. They, they went through a six-month digital transformation. Exactly. Much faster than most large companies in some ways. And they've been nimble. They've been agile. They've really pivoted so hard and they've become digital first organizations. And They've really, you know, uh, gone on a trajectory which has accelerated over the last couple of years. And I think it's going to stay, right? Now it is much more of an environment where there is significant labor shortages and they're seeing, you know, more macroeconomic uh, challenges where productivity and getting productivity from their workforce and being able to drive their front office go-to-market teams to be able to become much more productive is really important. And so... I think that transformation and acceleration of leveraging technology is going to continue for a while for small and medium businesses. I, I think, you know, I couldn't agree more. And as you said, it's relatively early in that transition. And so, so that's the opportunity ahead. Now, in addition to that, if you look at sort of the way software is, is, is being delivered, you know, so far software is still, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify it, it's a set of workflows it's, it's a database or a repository for information. It's, it's a set of permissioning tools that allow people to sort of, you know, decide who gets to access what information, who gets to approve what. Uh, but increasingly, we're starting to see automation be built in. And, you know, people use different buzzwords, like you hear the term intelligent automation, AI first apps, proactive decision-making versus reactive, bots. How do, how do you see the role of machine learning and AI in, in enterprise software in the coming decade? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Look, uh, we, uh, you know, from a HubSpot perspective, simplify it. We think about it as applied intelligence. Um, because, you know, as a category, people have been talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and there are lots of prog projects and initiatives that people can take. But the segment that we serve, which is the small and medium business, they are constantly multitasking. They're constantly trying to get the best out of investments that they make. And so 
the way we think about machine intelligence and artificial uh, artificial intelligence is really applied. So how do you make the job of a marketeer better? How do you make the job of a salesperson much more optimized? How can you provide self-learning tools, knowledge bases that the service interactions become better? And so the way we think about it is we try to simplify it for the segment that we serve, um, which is all about applying you know, machine intelligence, machine learning and intelligence to us. And I think it makes a lot of sense because I mean, forget small businesses, even most large companies are struggling to process and absorb sort of the avalanche of machine learning and AI technology yep. that, that's coming at them. Uh, and at the same time, it interestingly creates an opportunity for startups. So as you think about what you are doing in machine learning and AI, and as you look back at sort of the other companies you've, uh, you've been part of, what advice do you have for startups that are trying to play in this, in this space? You know, that's a, that's a great question. To me, it comes to optimizing human time. And, uh, you know, there are so many pitches I've heard uh, when I was leading sales, when I was leading strategy and operations in terms of applied machine learning. And it always comes down to how are you going to help me optimize time? And specifically, if I'm leading a sales organization, the time of the sales rep in front of the customer is the most valuable. And so to me, it goes back to the application. I always have the question of, tell me what you're doing, what your algorithms do, but more importantly, tell me how it's going to impact the time of that particular rep in front of the customer or the rep or a support agent in front of the customer. And if you are able to show a clear through line from what your technology does to that optimization, then there is some value there. A lot of times you hear pitches that are you know, somewhat interesting. It's an interesting problem to solve, but really does not have impact. And it really needs to come back to the impact that you can have in someone's time. I think that's a, that's a good filter to put, you know, how much time can you save and how much does that time then work? And, yep, and, exactly. and for sales reps or customer success, you know, time in front of customers is so valuable that if you can give them back time to do that uh, using machine learning, I mean, that's, there's a business right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of times engineers like to say, I'm going to like just solve a problem for the sake of solving the problem, but you can be one of the best engineers when you decide what problems to solve and what problems to solve comes from deep understanding of customers and having an empathy for the day-to-day -day work that a customer does. It's the same thing in terms of selling. Now, the more obvious answer to that would be, you know, you got to present really well, you uh, never take no for an answer. All of those are pretty obvious in terms of selling, but it has to come from this place of deep empathy. And we started the conversation talking about um, what it means to sell software. To me, selling software is really helping someone's career. It's helping bet on their career and being able to see them get promoted. And so that's the deep empathy that a salesperson needs to have as well. How about you, Ashu? What do you I think? I mean, I think, you know, I, I, was, I was reflecting what you said in, uh, I think you're spot on, yet I would say there's, there, there's a nuance to that. Salespeople have to sell what they have. Uh, they, they are given a product and over time they have influence, but in, in, in the moment. And so 
for them, the, the customer empathy, a lot of it is about really deeply understanding the customer needs as they exist, is understanding what their software does today and what it might do over time. And it's, as you as you you know you're, as you sell a promotion, you're selling in large part the vision of the software. You're selling a specific pain point it solves today. Both things have to be true. No one buys just vision, and no one just buys sort of a a hammer that can you know that you can you know hit a nail with. And, oh. and so that's the balance a salesperson has. You know, engineers on the other hand, in some ways, have, have so much more freedom. The time window in which they're making decisions or having impact is very different. And so very often engineers choose to solve problems. I mean, they have to understand the customer and deeply understand the customer, but they can choose to solve problems in an approach the customer might not necessarily recognize. Yes. You know, very often I find some of the best founders, you know, when they articulate the solution to the problem, it makes complete sense. But if I had gone and talked to 25 customers, none of them would have said, I want to buy blah. Just like none of us would have said we want to buy the iPhone. Yes. I was super happy with my BlackBerry. And then, you know, the iPhone came along like, what is that piece of crap called the BlackBerry? Uh, so it's, it's the ability of an engineer or a product leader to find an answer to a problem that exists. But the answer is very different from what, you know, uh, what people know. And I think that comes from, and you talked about it earlier, it comes from the, the, the ability to think very holistically. Yes. system thinking to say, look, I'm seeing all these pieces of the puzzle. I'm looking, you know, we can all see pixels on a screen and someone can see the Mona Lisa and someone cannot. Yep. I think that's what engineers are able to do. They see a picture that's just a bunch of pixels on a screen where salespeople on the other hand are forced to sell what they have. And, and so they, they tend to view the world very differently. Uh, I think the other difference I find is in some ways, you know, engineering is about deep work. Like you, you can think peripherally, you can, you integrate a lot of ideas, but then at some point you have to sort of lock yourself in a room metaphorically and, and crank out code. Yep. And, and, and the ability to do that, it, it takes a certain personality. It takes, you know, it's, it's not about grit or persistence, which engineers have and, and salespeople do too. It is about a, 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 the ability to do that. You know, the best engineers I find when I have one of my, the founders of my company, it doesn't matter what the problem is or what piece of code you're trying to write. It's like, tell me what we need and just, you know, get out of the office and I'll see you tomorrow. Yes. And, and you know, this is a company which has 500 engineers and yet tomorrow that feature is, you know, in production. Uh, that's what an, an exceptional engineer does. Salespeople, on the other hand, they have to be able to skim the surface. Yes. Like they're, they're picking threads from different places. They're, they're walking the corridors of, of the, at least they used to before COVID, uh, of their customers. And the signals are very, are weak. And, and it's their ability to sort of bring people together to coalesce around a goal. Uh, and so it, I think it takes very different people skills. Both people have people skills. Both people have problem solving skills, but the problem solving skills to do deep work are very different from the problem solving skills, you know, to be an inch deep at a mile wide. I, I love the way you're framing it. I like that a lot. <laughs> you know, it's, it's and, and as you and I have both gone through this, we both started as engineers and I found very quickly, I really struggled with the deep work. 
you know, <laughs> 30 minutes into a six hour coding session, I was like, I'm kind of dead. I need a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the rest is history. I ended up in sales as well. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.